0: Good morning, my name is Kent, I'm a pastor here at SOMA, and as I mentioned in our prayer, we have been tracking through the book of Exodus, which is this series in a book that is, yes, the second book of the Bible, but again, as I've already made mention, it's an important story, and it still resonates with us, because ultimately, it is our story. And I need to catch you up where we were, because we had a break of Memorial Day, where we were in the series of Exodus, which is good, because, like... Ninety nine percent of you weren't here. It was me and Thomas Burris who was preaching and then like two other people and we were all we were really encouraged But you know everybody else was experiencing Memorial Day wherever you were and that's great But I want to re-catch you up to what was last happening in the book of Exodus Because where we last left off was the most well-known portion of the book or at least one of them which is the plague narratives but as you remember in that story, we went through the plagues and we went through and saying like, hey, God was not just saying like, hey, what else can I think of? Frogs. That'll be crazy. But like, what is he doing? He's systematically walking through every single God that the Egyptians worshipped and he's dismantling their worldview. Hey, that God that you worship, I'm not going to say that there's no power behind that because ultimately there was. The magicians were able to produce a whole lot in the narrative We're like, Moses throws down his staff it becomes the great like, sea monsters actually like actually unpacked last week. It's not just a serpent. It's actually something much crazier than that that falls on the ground. And then all the magicians do it too. And there's always this sense of like, well, how did they do it? And he's like, well, because well, there's a power there. You're tapping into something that's powerful and opposing, and it's real. It's just not the ultimate power. And so he, God walks through each plague. Hey, you know, you guys worship the Nile and the God of the Nile. But ultimately, that God doesn't have ultimate power over if this Nile is going to be your life force or life-sustaining presence. I am. And you worship a God with the head of a frog. And it's supposed to bring you life and fertility and peace. And I can take that same image, and I can bring pain and destruction and disintegration. Because ultimately, I created this world, and I can decreate it. And ultimately, that is what I'm showing you. That yes, I'm the one who's... doing on letting the finger snap and the world unravel but ultimately it is your sin your death that you enter into the system that is giving you the ultimate fruit which is complete disintegration of all beauty of all creation of all light into darkness i mean that's where the last plague ends in darkness it wasn't just attacking Ra, the sun god the ultimate god to them it was also saying hey this whole thing has worked backwards What was once beautiful and created and and working towards life is now bringing death, is now left in darkness. Let there be light, and now let there be dark, because we're gone backwards. And of course, we left at a bit of a cliffhanger, because the ultimate part of the story is the tenth and final plague where we find ourselves this morning, in which the only thing they're holding on to at this point, they have no peace, they have no food. They have no livestock. They have no worldview. Their gods have been dismantled. They now have no light. It was a darkness that was said could be felt. But the one thing they do have is the life itself. And that's what gets threatened. We'll be in Exodus 11. In this narrative, I mean, really to to do it faithfully, it it goes through 1316, which is my text that I've been studying and pressing into and will bring stuff out of. But again, like last time, I won't read the entirety of that narrative. Um, I'll be touching down throughout. Uh, But if you want to follow along, it is about page 53 in the uh, the Black Bible around you, depending on which edition you have. Um, It's 11 through 13, 16. Let me read just chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take the according to the number of persons, according to what each each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their land at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord; the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast of the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Ultimately, the story is going to go on, and of course, it's going to lead to the actual plague taking place and death striking all throughout Egypt. And as you've already noticed and has already made mention of, This plague stands apart. This needs to be its own sermon. It can't run with the other nine because, though it's like the other nine, it's very meant to be wholly set apart. Because the other nine, there's a really simple formula here's the plague, here's the result, and here's the ending, the conclusion. Pharaoh's still hard. And so that had happened nine times. Ten, if you count throwing down of the staff. So there had been a wonder. It had been executed, and it had a result. Pharaoh's heart was still hardened. And so to this point, God has done, again, 10 signs total, if you count the staff. But it has ultimately not had the effect. But God, all throughout the Exodus, all throughout the book, is saying, hey, that's very intentional. It's not just like, oh, I need death to finally let you out of Egypt. He didn't need it to change Pharaoh's heart. In fact, this isn't the only exodus narrative of the Bible. Uh, If you look future into this people, they are going to be carried off in exile to Babylon. And then when they they are exodus out of Babylon, back to their homeland, it says that the king of the day... It doesn't come in with God like saying, hey, by the way, Exodus narrative going all over again. I'm going to kill all the firstborn once again because this is how you have to get people out of a a slavery situation. No, he says he just goes to the king and changes his heart. He just wakes up and be like, I just feel like I'm going to let him go. And he does. He didn't have to have this narrative. But he does it in this way and he says the tenth plague. He takes three Chapters to set up, hey, this is what the plague is going to be. This is how it's going to be threatened. This is how it's going to actually happen. This is how you're going to remember it. Here's how it's going to be a feast for all the days. Here's how you're going to escape it. Here's how you're going to live through every generation. I mean, if you read through, you're going to hear over and over again, I want you to remember this for all generations, for all your sons and daughters. I want everyone to continue to rehearse, even reenact this with feasting in a way that will continue to put this into your body in a very physical, earthy, grizzly grizzly way and it's because God is saying hey there's something about this moment that I want you to really take note of this is a story that I want you to work into even live out as your story because this was their story And it was communicating very specific truths, and three of them that I really want us to note, and I think are the most three overarching truths of this story and the ultimate story of the Israelites, and ultimately, I would argue, the ultimate story of you and I. And they're these three. One, death comes for everybody. I mean, that was the point when he starts saying to Pharaoh, he says, hey, by the way, the death angel is going to come To you, to all firstborns throughout the whole land, from the pharaoh to the slave girl with one child. And it's making a very clear statement. Nobody escapes death. And, of course, this one, again, was attacking the final god, that the Egyptians still had that was untouched to this point. Again, I just said the other nine plagues are just systematically going through and saying, hey, this God is not ultimately powerful. That God's not ultimately powerful. All the estimated 1,500 gods that you worship are not ultimately powerful. But the last one left untouched was Pharaoh himself because he was seen as God himself incarnate into flesh and the representative of the gods in this world. And so ultimately says, hey, I'm going to take the firstborn of not just all the people, but Pharaoh too. You say, why the firstborn? Why all this talk about firstborn? Well, firstborn has kind of been the whole battle we've been fighting the entire book. I mean, chapter one, when the first Pharaoh looks out on the people and says, hey, I'm really scared about this people rising up and, and, and I want to make sure that they... We no longer allow them to increase and multiply as they had been commanded to from the beginning of creation, but rather I want to diminish and I want to kill and I want to enslave. And how am I going to ultimately do that? Well, if I can't find any other way, then kill all the firstborn sons. Toss them into the Nile. And then when God comes and says, hey, I'm going to bring a rescuer. I'm going to save my people. He says, hey, I want you to tell the Pharaoh, let my firstborn go that when I look at Israel, I look at them as the firstborn. And you got to understand, firstborn was not just like, okay, that's literally just the first, that's the oldest kid, and they got some special favor. Like, we give the oldest kid in our families today. Because, again, as we said, like, firstborn, you make homemade organic baby food for them. And the thirdborn, you're just like, what are you eating? A hot dog? Awesome. Where'd you find it? I don't care. I don't have to feed you now. And... (laughs) And that's great because that's just ultimately how we view the firstborn. But to them, the firstborn was all of their hopes for the future. All of their thoughts of, of who they were as an identity went towards the firstborn son. Because the way that you accumulated wealth was not at the end of the life of the patriarch. They just divide up all the wealth amongst all the children. No, 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 that would divide your assets and that would ultimately limit what you could do as a family. Rather, you would take the firstborn male and pass all of the assets onto that male and then they would accumulate more and then take all those assets and, pour, and pass them on to the next firstborn male so that all of the wealth and all of your prosperity and all of your hopes and all of your inheritance would all stay as powerful as it could with the ultimate firstborn male of the family. And so when you take the firstborn, you're ultimately saying, I take everything from you. And so when God looks at, into the face of the man who thought himself to be God and says, I take your firstborn, means I have all power, even over you. And so death comes for everyone. It also says this, everyone is guilty. Again, death was not just going to Pharaoh, who was the one who was the executor of mass genocide and was the one who was ultimately continuing to harden his heart or have his heart hardened or whatever you want to look at. We talked about that last time. I don't have time to get back into that now. But still, ultimately saying, hey, it's not just you, Pharaoh, that's going to suffer the punishment. It's going to be even down to the slave girl that has just one kid. Everyone in this story is guilty. There's no concept of the noble poor, which is what a lot of authors and Charles Dickens probably most famously has written, written about this idea. And at the point when dickens was doing that he was trying to say like hey sometimes we villainize the poor and say they're cursed by god but actually if you look at their lives sometimes they are actually closer to the heart of god and and jesus himself said hey i'm going to show up and i'm going to go to the poor because they actually know they're sick but ultimately jesus was not saying and, and dickens i don't think is accurately saying that there's not this sense of just like hey if you don't have resources then you are blameless before god because we've seen that it i mean I have a friend who works with high net worth individuals. I mean, just Money that would just blow your mind. And Christians, too. They're Christian high net worth individuals. And he says, like, it's crazy. You'll see some of the habits they have. And, and it's often easy for me to sit back and judge. But the people I work with say, no, don't do that. You don't understand how it is to have that kind of wealth. You don't understand what you're capable of until you do have it. And so what they're saying is, like, hey, don't look at the rich and be like, oh man, they've like, you know, they're just uniquely wicked. He said, no, anyone dropped that amount into their bank account or have that kind of power, that kind of wealth, will find that there is a whole host of sin in their heart that they couldn't, that only you were just being kept at bay by the limitations of your resources. He said, no, there's no one innocent in this whole game. He said, not just the Jews, or sorry, not just the, uh, the Egyptians, but the, the Hebrews, the, the Israelites themselves. They say, ultimately, hey, I want you to not assume you're getting out of this plague just because, like in the other plagues, I mean, God had said, like, darkness was in the land of the Egyptians, but not in the land of the Israelites. all the cattle died from the Egyptians, but none of the cattle died from the, uh, from the Israelites. There was a, a way that he could easily make a distinction, but he says, no, 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 I'm not going to make the distinction this time, because truth be told, there is no distinction. You guys are fighting each other, too. You are killing your kinsmen too. You're worshiping the same bankrupt gods as the Egyptians. And so ultimately you will be freed from this Passover, but it won't be because you're guiltless. It will be because you take a perfect spotless lamb and slaughter it. And then take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorpost. And when I see that lamb, when the, the destroyer passes through and sees the blood on the doorpost, it will be a sign that you have a death already in the house because the night of the Passover every household contained a death it was either the death of the firstborn or the death of the Passover lamb but no one was without death because it comes for everybody and so everyone death is coming for everyone everyone's guilty but the ultimate truth that they were called to remember and we're called to remember is that a rescuer is coming. That ultimately the Passover lamb was meant to represent this idea that, hey, I am going to free you. In fact, I want you to have a feast the day that this is going to happen, but when you do, I want you to eat with your cloak and your staff in hand because I want you to be ready to go nine plagues ten signs have already come and pharaoh's heart has remained hard and you might think that i don't have the power to actually do this but this time i want you to eat with your walking shoes on because you are going in fact so quickly will you have to go they will push you out of the land i will do this so completely you won't be able to stay in slavery if you wanted to which later in the book if you realize they actually kind of do he says no i'm driving you out i'm pushing you out into freedom And so, hey, when you bake bread tonight, don't put all the ingredients in because you don't have time to let that thing rise. Be prepared to move because this is going to happen and it's happening now. A rescuer is coming. And so ultimately, again, we see all throughout this narrative that god says hey i want you to take this as a ceremony as a real thing where you're actually remembering this by eating the lamb and eating the flattened bread without the yeast and eating bitter herbs that represented the bitterness of their slavery and you have salt which represents like the saltiness of their tears and all these things that are going all throughout i want you to in a real way i want you to Eat this. I want you to remember this so much. It, like It's ingrained in your conscience, in your subconscious, and it is every story that ever comes out of you is connected to this story. It's because it is your ultimate story. And as I said, it's our ultimate story. It's why we tell this story every chance we get. I mean, think of any movie of any financial worth the last 50 years i mean we won't go that far back but just i mean you can just take a couple of them of recent of like harry potter ultimately what do you have there a chosen one that takes death into himself even dies with death so that he might rise again but leaving death still dead in the grave and freeing his people And they they interview J.K. Rowling and say, hey, where did you get this story? And she's like, uh, Jesus. (laughs) And then you have Frozen. (laughs) What do you have in that moment? You have a person who has gifts, but they try to use their gifts in the community and find themselves to be destructive. And so they must isolate from community, pulling away, because ultimately all they can do when they try is destroy and destroy. And so what must happen but Anna must step forward? and sacrificed herself because only an act of true love, which is not getting all smoochy smoochy with Hans, but is stepping in front of a sword and sacrificing oneself for another is said that is an act of true love and it is only love that melts the frozen heart. And you can even take the most recent example of the Avengers Endgame movie. And I know everyone who hasn't seen it is just like, don't give me spoilers right now. It's been like seven weeks. That thing has grossed $2.7 billion. And if your money is not in that pot already, then I don't think you're really that motivated to see it. <laughs> but if you really want to be like, have a purist, then you need to do some major earmuffs right now. Because I'm going to give you one of the biggest spoilers of the movie. Yeah, OK, I just, all right, there we go. You can just do it, and I, you'll know, I will know. I will pass over you with this. All right, that is the sign. All right. Ultimately, what do we have? We have a world that is hopeless to save themselves. And so a character that will at this point remain nameless must leave the comfort and the pleasure that he has found and must step in and fight on behalf of the people and ultimately must sacrifice himself to redeem back from the dead all of humanity. Where do they get this story? Why does it keep coming up again and again, and you will pay $25 to see IMAX 3D because we can't get over this story? Because ultimately this is our story, that death is coming. We don't like to talk about it, but Jonathan Edwards, one of the Puritans wrote in his resolutions, I'm resolved to think often of my death and the circumstances surrounding it, that I might understand more of the beauty of life and what I've been called to. And uh, I heard, a, well, uh, before I say that, I'll say, like, even with Jonathan Edwards, even just beyond, like, us not thinking about death, we even use euphemisms. I mean, like, to talk about it. We talk about people passing away or they've departed because ultimately, even saying the words, they're dead, just feels too harsh and heavy for most of us to bear. I mean, ultimately, I was here listening actually to a podcast of people review uh Endgame, and they were talking about halfway through the movie, they said, I just began to wonder if they might just leave all the characters still dead from the first movie. And they might actually have to see these people, these even superhuman people, wrestle with the fact that death is just an And people don't all just come back. And people have to mourn and deal with that and move on. It's not just a hypothetical. There's been many times where population has all of a sudden just been cut dramatically by plagues, by holocaust, by by war. And it wasn't just a snap of the fingers and everyone comes back. It It was learning to live with that ultimate reality that we all know is true. That death comes for all of us. I think every 4th of July now, I'm going to think of a friend who lost their two-year-old son last year at the bottom of a pool. was not able to be revived. And I remember getting the text from one of our in common friends of just saying, hey, hey, pray for the Hampton family and pray for Haddon. And, and, and ultimately, I get the text that says, no, Haddon, Haddon's passed. And, and now it's like every point this year, I think about the moment where I didn't just say, oh, you know what, that's natural, it's just a part of life. I went to my just over two-year-old son, Asmund, and I hugged him, because I knew death was coming for him. I know it still is, it's coming for me too. Ultimately, it comes for us all, and we can try to make up little tropes about like, oh, it's just natural, oh, it, it feeds the grass, which produces more life, but it's bogus. We were never meant to resolve death. We were meant to always see it as our bitter enemy. That's how the Bible talks about it. It says, hey, death, by the way, it's your enemy. It'll always be your enemy. Nicholas Wolterstorff, that's how you pronounce his name, lost a son. He was a, he's a retired professor from Yale, a professor of philosophy. And he lost his son in a, in a mountain climbing accident. And someone once said to his wife, She said, I hope you're learning to live at peace with Eric's death. And Wolterstorff responded with an entire book called Lament for a Son. He writes this. He says, peace, shalom, salam. Shalom is the fullness of life in all its dimensions. Shalom is dwelling in justice and delight with God, with neighbor, with oneself and nature. Death is shalom's mortal enemy death is demonic we cannot live at peace with death When the writer of Revelation spoke of the coming of the day of Shalom, he did not say that on that day we would live at peace with death. He said that on that day there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the older order of things has passed away. I shall try to keep the wound from healing. In recognition of our living still in the old order of things, I shall try to keep it from healing. In solidarity with those who sit beside me on humanity's mourning bench. Death comes for us all and we can't escape. And ultimately what makes that even more painful is the second truth of our story is that we are all guilty. Speaking of Yale, they have um, the Infant Cognition Center in which recently now, it was only a few years ago, they released a study in which they determined that in children as young as three months old, there is a rough morality present. Well, full details of the study we can't get into, but basically if you Google it, you can read it, and you can see that ultimately they took stu- they took not students, they took children, infants, again, as early as three months, and had little puppets that on these little stories and some of the puppets would hug and care and give to others and other puppets would hit and steal and do wicked things. And then later when given the puppets, again, with like very few outliers across a wide statistical conclusion, every single child as early as three months old would hold the kind puppet, would hug it, would kiss it, and they would take the wicked puppet and they'd hit it. They instantly knew it needed to be judged and they'd reject it. Because ultimately, even at three months, I mean, that's just slightly older than our youngest daughter now, Greta. They understand. There's something to be done that is right and wrong in this world and there's a standard that we can measure up to or we should be judged for. Brene Brown a reference recently has one of the most popular TED Talks, and it was on guilt and shame, and she defines guilt and shame, and she says, and it, guilt is the feeling that I've done something wrong, but shame is the idea that I am something wrong. And ultimately, we all struggle with shame. Not just that we've done wrong, but that we exist in this state of inability to do right, inability to stop doing wrong, That what I want to do, I cannot do, and that which I do not want to do, I do every time I try to stop. Guilt is what makes death so scary to us. That was Hamlet's whole problem. I mean, you remember the most famous line of all of Shakespeare, to be or not to be. That is the question. I mean, ultimately he's saying, do I continue to live or do I take my life? But ultimately, as he works through it alone on stage, he says, ultimately, I I, I can't do it because he says to grunt and sweat under a weary life, but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns, puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. Thus, conscience makes cowards of us all. He's saying, ultimately, I choose to bear the pain of life right now because I just don't know what happens next, and I don't feel ready. I mean, we hear about it all the time. I mean, even in one of our baptism stories today, there's the concept of looking death in the face and it ultimately giving a new perspective of how we're choosing to live life. That's what everyone constantly is wrestling with, the sense of, like, if I could keep the idea of my mortality and my death in front of me, I would live life completely differently. I would spend so much less time droned in on a screen doing maybe entertaining but trivial things. It's not that that's all wrong. I'm just saying that there's so many times where I'm just watching myself sit in front of my children not enjoying their lives but being sucked into a screen of course you hear anyone who's ever had the pain of losing a child or a spouse saying if i could have just one more day with them i would be fully present i'd be fully there because there's something about death that reshapes the way that says i'm not living in a way that's in accordance to what's good and right and true none of us can face death without guilt And ultimately, that's a thought that terrifies us if we linger long enough on it. But our story is that death is coming, and we are all guilty. But a rescue is coming. And not just a temporary rescue, but an ultimate one. Because even the exodus, even taking these people out of slavery was a temporary rescue. I mean, ultimately, they have to wander in the wilderness and because they grumble and because they want to return to slavery, God says, okay, like I'm not going to put you back in slavery, but you're not going to go into the promised land. You're all going to die off in this wilderness. And the next generation that comes after you, they will have the opportunity to enter into my rest, enter into my full promise. Because ultimately they didn't have the ultimate rescue. They had a temporary rescue. And the, the Passover points to an ultimate rescue. I've told the story before, but I'm always reminded um, of Jessica McClure, who again was an 18 month old infant in the 80s in Midland, Texas, who fell into a well in the back of her aunt's house, Midland, Texas. It was eight inches wide, so only 18 months could really fit into it, but it went 22 feet down. She falls into that well, and it said that all of Midland and Odessa and the greater area of Texas shuts down, businesses close, schools close. Everything begins to focus around this one yard in which they do their best to keep people at bay so that person after person can begin digging an adjacent tunnel to dig 22 feet down right next and then eventually be able to transfer over into the well that Jessica was stuck in and transfer her out. And they said they knew that she was still alive because they could hear her singing. They could hear her saying nursery rhymes to herself, that they weren't just going to recover a body, they were trying to recover the life of a child. And so they said, Ronald Reagan, who was president at the time, said we all, everyone in America became a godmother or a godfather to Jessica. And they said that there was an AP reporter that was trying to get a photo of the whole scene. And so he goes to the next door neighbor. That moment that they're finally getting 22 feet down. And he's just trying to snap a picture. And he says he was struck. He climbs up in a tree. He's trying to get up high enough. He's trying to get a bird's eye view. And he said he was then all of a sudden arrested by two sounds. The first sound was absolute silence because the moment in which they were attempting to transfer over from one tunnel to the next was very precarious. I mean, if you make a wrong move, the whole thing could collapse in on both the people that are trying to save Jessica and Jessica herself. And so they said that there was, even though the entire area was present, no one's making a sound. And then the next moment was an eruption of joy, of a celebration, of a town that had received back this lost daughter, redeemed from death, And then not that man's uh, photo, but just a local photographer snapped a picture of that moment and it won the Pulitzer Prize because it was a moment of elation of a community that had received a rescue. It brings real life and real ideas to the idea when Jesus says, hey, by the way, when I find one sheep, when I find one coin You have no idea the eruption of the heavenly host that happens when one son or daughter comes home and is rescued from death. And so ultimately that story is our story. Because 15,000 years later, after the Passover, after the temporary rescue, Jesus is walking the scene. And one day John... The apostle, or who'd become that, sees him and just, actually, sorry, this was John writing about this, and he's writing about John the Baptist, the one who came before to prepare the way for Jesus. And he says that John the Baptist looks over and sees Jesus just walking down the street and just screams out in front of everyone, behold, the chosen lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then we pick up that story later in Mark chapter 14. Where all of a sudden, I mean, if you, know, if you know about the Gospels, if you've read the four books of the Gospels, it's interesting, a third of their content, a third of all of their content, takes place over one week of Jesus' life. And it's this week of the Passover, the seven-day feast. And it says in 14 that Jesus says, On the first day of the, uh, the, first day, of, uh, the day of Unleavened Bread, when he went to go sacrifice the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet, uh, you will meet, and you will follow him. And when, whatever he, uh, wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is the guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready and prepared for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as they had told him and they prepared the passover and if you read it you just all of a sudden it's like like five times in these verses you hear like passover 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 and it's just jesus preparing something that he had already done 32 times before but this time it zooms in and and then he he gets all his disciples together and he hosts the passover and if you've ever participated in this feast, you can do it today. In fact, it's still celebrated every year. I actually got the opportunity to, pass, uh, to participate in what's called the Seder. And it's the same. I mean, you eat lamb, roasted lamb. You eat bitter herbs, which tastes a lot like horseradish. You eat salt. You have salty, uh, salty things on the menu as well. You have flatbread. I mean, it's really not great. And uh, you have a host. And the host there the whole time, every element that comes out, they take and there's a very specific script and they've been saying it. at this point, they had been saying this year after year for 1,500 Passovers. The script was unchanging. Every year you work this into you, the host picks up the bread and says, this is the bread of our fathers, which we, they ate in their affliction and they break it. And Jesus stands up as the host. And all of a sudden the record scratches when he says, this is my body broken for you. And then he takes the cup and he was meant to lift the cup and say, may the drinking of this make us worthy by the all loving God for the days of the Messiah. Instead, Jesus raises the cup and he says, this is my blood. He says this specifically. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And what he's saying is you've been waiting year after year after year for what you've been trying to become worthy of the Messiah. And I'm here. This story is This ultimate story is about me. You're no longer waiting. You're in the presence of him. And then ultimately, in what would follow his death, and resurrection i mean the bible of course then just spins the rest of the the books basically just unpacking this idea and how this changes everything and it's going to say things like first peter 1 18, where it says knowing that you were ransomed for the futile ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things such as silver or gold but with the precious blood of christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot And Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. And through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And then we sing with 1 Corinthians 15.55, it says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us a victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's probably no more appropriate way to depict this than on a baptism Sunday. Praise God that's what he delivered to us. This was by no master working of the calendar on our part. But God has provided us two depictions of this and two testimonies. And so before we conclude with communion, we're going to first observe this story take place in two stories. And so I I invite uh, Caitlin and everyone that is going to be a part of Caitlin's story at first, and then after that we'll invite Hannah and those who are going to be part. And I invite not just those who are both reading and baptizing, because we'll have someone read her testimony and someone uh, also baptize her, but Uh, I invite, uh, if you're here, and you're part of Caitlin's missional community, or you're a family member that wants to be present, we'd actually invite you to even, if you would desire to, come forward and be present, and you can actually be just behind the baptismal here, to be having Caitlin surrounded by her community, because we recognize this is not an individual story, this is a communal story. And so Caitlin, you can go ahead and and get in the baptism waters, and and anyone forward who has been a part of her story in a significant way uh, are welcome to come forward and be a part of it. Awesome. Hi, everyone.